Our D6 theme today is on the deity of Christ. And uh, for the next several weeks, I am going to get away from our D6 theme every week. Normally, I speak on what we study together collectively uh, as a church family and just try to drive home the biblical theme that we're all studying all week long. And I try to speak on that very same subject. But I really felt impressed with the Lord to venture away from that uh, for this particular series. And uh, I want to just speak to you today in this series on habits of a healthy church and just try to expound a little bit on each one of these that I believe are seven habits that we need to have in our church that can help us to be healthy so that we can see life change uh, take place. So today's habit is on leadership. And so before I get started in the message today, why don't you watch this short video? It's not measured by how tall he stands, by the tone of his voice or the strength of his hands, or the width of his smile or the curve of his chin. No, a leader is measured without and within by the number of lives that his life has changed, by those ransomed and rescued who have called out his name, by the storms he has weathered for some other's sake by the nights they have slept while he alert and awake kept watch for the dangers ever present and near so as to lay down his life for those he holds dear no a leader is not measured by promises made or by accolades offered by those he persuades his worth as a leader quite simply is found in those who have life due to his life laid down. speaking this morning on habit number one of seven habits that we must have in place in order to have a healthy church. And habit number one is simply leadership. But before I get started today, I've got to define, I want us to define, do a little bit of review from last week's message, what defines a healthy church? Remember last week I talked about how um, it's not necessarily the size of a church, it's not necessarily the budget of a church. It's not how big or small a church building may be. Those things really do not define what we would call a healthy church. What is it that defines a healthy, highly effective church? And I think I've got it on the screen, Dean, if you'll uh, get that up there for me, please. What is it that defines a healthy church? Anybody remember? It's life change. Okay, write that down in your notes. Take out your sermon notes, if you will, please. And um, do you see it there, Dean? says D6 theme, deity of Christ. All right, let's go a little past that. A little bit past that. There we go. That's what we're looking for. That's what I want you to jot down, okay? That's what defines a healthy church, that we see lives that are being changed. 
In other words, they're not the same old man or same woman or same boy or same girl that they used to be. Things that become new in their life. Now, we want to see them change in the direction of the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to see them accept Christ as their Savior. We want to see them grow in their faith and grow in their relationship with the Lord. We want to see them impact people around them, share the gospel with family, friends, loved ones, co-workers. That's the type of life change that we are looking for. So the second question I want to ask you, and you can jot this one down in your notes as well. How do we judge the success of a particular ministry at Victory Church. Do you remember how we do that? There's a three letter or three letters that we're looking for. There you are. It's already up on the screen. RTLs. That's what we're looking for. Well, what are RTLs? RTLs are radically transformed lives. That's what we're looking for in every single ministry and everything that we're, do, we're doing as a church family. We're looking for lives to be changed by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ living within them and that individual surrendering their life to the Lordship of Christ and letting Him lead and guide and direct them. When that takes place, you'll see a life that is radically transformed by the power of God. I know I'm one of those individuals. You go back to my hometown back in Ockard, North Carolina, uh, and it's Ockard, and it's spelled I-C-A-R-D. You guys get that? It's not I, it's not Ockard, it's Ockard. That's where I'm from, okay? And you go back and you start asking around in my hometown about John Cannon, and they'll tell you some things that may blow you out of the water. You want me to tell you why? Because that's who I used to be. You see, that's the kid I was growing up. That's the young man I was in high school. But Christ got a hold of my heart and my life, and things started changing in John Cannon. My life has been radically, and that's a good word, radically transformed by the power of Christ living within me. I'm not the same old man that I used to be. I don't do the things that I used to do. I don't go the places where I used to go. I don't talk the way that I used to talk. I don't treat people the way today that I used to treat people when I was the old man. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? I mean, there's a change that takes place in your life. That's how, that's what we use to judge the success of something. We want to see your life change. We want to see other people's lives change by the power of Christ. Now listen, simply being a church member won't change your life. Simply being baptized won't change your life. Simply giving your tithe and your offering won't change your life. Simply coming to church won't change your life. Simply coming to Sunday school won't change your life. What will change your life? The Lord Jesus Christ. And you giving your heart and your life to Him, that will change, radically transform your life. Now there's a third thing I want you to understand as we go through this whole series on habits of a highly effective, healthy church. There's another thing you need to understand. You need to know at Victory what our vision statement is. Do you know what that is? I put it on your sermon notes every single Sunday. It's right up there at the top of your sermon notes. It's right, you see the letter V and the little circle around it. Look to the right of that and what does it say? Building what? To carry? 
That's our vision statement. That's what we're trying to do. We are being very intentional about that particular statement. And by the way, that particular statement, it's based in the scripture. It says that we are building D6 families. What are D6 families? That's Deuteronomy chapter 6, 5 and 6. One of the oldest commands in the word of God that we as parents teach our kids about the ways of the Lord and what he said when they rise up in the morning, when they lay down in the evening, as they're walking through the day, that we be intentional about teaching our kids the Word of God and what God has to say. Now, we're intentionally trying to do that. One of the things that we're trying to do, we'll talk more about it when we get to that particular habit, when we talk about discipleship, but we're trying to equip families so that when you leave church on Sunday, you can engage in a spiritual conversation with your entire family and everybody be on the same page. That's the neat thing about our whole discipleship paradigm or strategy, D6. And we're going to be talking more about that. But we're intentionally trying to build D6 families. Let me tell you why. You see, I only have about 30 minutes a week to be able to share with you. That's it. But moms and dads and families, you're together all week long. Now, don't, doesn't it just make sense that, that we really try to equip moms and dads to be able to teach and lead and guide and direct their families in the ways of the Lord so that we can spiritually grow up and be more mature? Hello? So that's what we're intentionally trying to do. We're intentionally trying to build D6 families. Now, once we build these D6 families, what else are we trying to do? We're trying to get these D6 families to carry out the Great Commission. And by the way, that's biblical. Matthew chapter 28, 19 and 20 tells us that we're to be going out, we're to be sharing the gospel, we're to be baptizing individuals, we're to be teaching them. There's five Great Commissions in the Word of God, one in each of the four Gospels, one in the book of Acts, and we're intentionally trying to get families to work together to carry out the Great Commission. And then, of course, the great commandment. That's the third part of our vision statement. What's the great commandment? It's in Matthew chapter 22. An individual came to Jesus one day and said, Hey, Lord, what is the greatest commandment? And what did he say? He said, Love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love the Lord thy God. And what else? Love your neighbor as yourself. So what we're also intentionally trying to do is to build relationships. First and foremost, a vertical relationship between you and God. And then secondly, horizontal relationships between you and one another. We need to learn how to just love people and just love on people and minister to people within our church family as well as without, outside the walls of our church. And that kind of filters in a little bit into our evangelism strategy. So you'll see that everything that we do here at Victory Church falls into this vision statement. Now I want you to know that. If someone comes up to you and says, hey, what is the direction that Victory Church is trying to go? What is it that they're trying to do? I want you to be able to say, hey, we're intentionally trying to build these six families so that we can carry out the great commission and the great commandment. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to grow families in the word of God so that mom and dad and junior and little, little sissy, that all the whole family together can grow spiritually so that we can collectively be involved in sharing the gospel and we learn how to love each other. I mean, if there's any place that someone in the, in the world can come and visit and learn about how to treat one another, it should be the house of God. That was awful weak. Amen? It should be the church. I mean, this is where we come to love on each other and to love those that are unlovable. Aren't you glad that Jesus loved you when you were unlovable? Boy, I am. I remember there was an old or young preacher, young man preacher, but he was a big guy, big burly guy. 
by the name of Daniel Buchanan. He and I worked the early shift at UPS together. And I had to go in at 2 in the morning. And he went in at 2. And, and he was a, a bivocational pastor. And, and he was a great and still is a great man of God today. But I remember old John Cannon, the old man that I used to be. And some of the language that I used to do. And boy, he would start preaching to me and preaching to me and preaching to me and talking to me. I mean, God used him even to help transform my life. The point I'm trying to make is this. Guys, we do ministry outside the four walls of these church. Or the four walls of this gym. This isn't even a church. It's a school. You're right? That we do ministry with those people that God brings across our path and, and our steps every single day. With our co-workers, with our family, with our friends, with our neighbors. With those at the grocery store. Whoever it is that God's bringing across your path. Those are the individuals that we're to reach out and love and care for. And I'm thankful that some men did that to me. Amen? I want you to look at a verse of scripture, and I think I put this in your notes. In Proverbs chapter 28, and we're going to be bringing the message out of the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. But before I get there, I want to share with you Proverbs chapter 28 and verse number 2. Now, I intentionally pulled this particular passage of scripture out of the New Living Translation. Now, look, look, look what it says. When there is moral rot within a nation, its government topples easily. But with wise and knowledgeable leaders, there is stability. Now I want you in your notes, I want you to underline or circle or put parentheses around the word stability. Where there are wise and knowledgeable leaders, there is stability. You see, when things are stable, it's a result of having a wise, knowledgeable, strong leader. And this particular verse... Not only does it apply to the church, but it also applies to the family. When there is strong leadership in the family, you'll have a stable family. Hello? Where does this stability come from? What does this particular passage of Scripture say? Where does this stability come from? It comes from wise and knowledgeable what? Leaders. And whenever we have wise and knowledgeable... And by the way, where does wisdom come from? It comes from God. The book of James says that we're to call to God and ask for wisdom. He gives wisdom to all men freely or liberally. So wisdom comes from God. Knowledge comes from God. These are godly men and women that are leading their families. And when we're engaged in our families, we get this wisdom from God, this knowledge from God. Then we can have stability in our families. And guys, I want your family to be stable. I want my family to be stable. I want there to be stability in my family and also in our churches or in our church. You can apply this not only to the family, you can also apply this to businesses. You can apply this to the church. You can apply this to everything. Where there's wise and knowledgeable leaders, there is stability. And stability comes from leadership. There's a particular passage of Scripture I want you to turn to in your Bibles. Take your Bibles out, if you will. The book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter number 1. And verses 1 through verse number 4. It's an Old Testament book, Nehemiah chapter number 1. You have Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, you with me there? Nehemiah chapter 1. I want you to turn in your Bibles there. And this is a great <clears throat> portion of Scripture. And, and if you get the opportunity, and I put in your D6 take-home notes, uh, something you can do as a family is, is read the book of Nehemiah, especially the first two chapters. Uh, read that and kind of engage in conversation about what I'm going to be speaking on here today. But I want us to look in Nehemiah chapter number 1. It says, The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, during the month of Chislev, in the twentieth year, 
When I was in the fortress city of Susa, Hananiah, one of my brothers, arrived with men from Judah. And I questioned them among Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that had returned from exile. And they said to me, The survivors in the province who returned from exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's walls has been broken down and its gates have been burned down. Look at Nehemiah's response in verse number four. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now, a few things that I want to share with you about Nehemiah in this particular story as a way of background before I get into some of the, uh, the meat of the message. First of all, when did this event take place? The Bible records for us that it took place around 445 or 446 B.C. And when it says there in verse number 1, during the month of Chislev, that's, for us, that's the month of November, December, right in that, that time frame. And it was written, and this took place around 445 or 446 B.C. Now, you've got to understand that in 586 B.C., Jerusalem was destroyed. The Jews went into exile. And they were carried into exile into Babylon. You remember that? And that was really God's judgment upon the Jewish people for disobeying Him. So for 70 years they are in Babylon. Which is, by the way, modern day Iraq. That's where they were carried into. And they were there for 70 years. But in 537 B.C., the first group of Jews were allowed to return back to Jerusalem. In 516 B.C., the temple was rebuilt. Now, today, the Jews do not have a temple. The temple was destroyed, again, in 70 A.D., but in 516 B.C., the temple was rebuilt. In 458 B.C., Ezra took a second group of Jews back home to Jerusalem, okay? Out of Babylon, back to Jerusalem. In 445 B.C., Nehemiah asked for permission to take the third group of Jews from Babylon back to Jerusalem to help rebuild the wall. So that gives you a little time frame about when this was happening. Where did it happen? What happened in Jerusalem? They're talking about the rebuilding of the walls. What was the problem? The problem was the city of Jerusalem was a mess. It was being somewhat rebuilt But it was still in in rubbles. It was a mess. The walls around the city had been totally destroyed. And by the way, that was very important in the biblical days that you have a fortified, walled city. You see, whenever you had strong walls around your city and whenever the enemy would come and attack the city, it would usually take them two to three to possibly four or five months to break through the wall to get into your city. So it was a great wall of defense and security for the children, for the people of Israel, for Jerusalem, when they had their walls built. But the walls were torn down. The walls were a mess. Now today we don't use walls. We use police. We use national security. We use radar. We use fighter pilots, whatever else we may need to use to defend our cities today. But in this particular day and age, the walls were that important. It was a wall of defense for them. 
Let me make a few observations before I once again get into the three things I want to ask you about Nehemiah. Observation number one is I want you to notice where Nehemiah was. It says in verse number one that he was in the city of Susa. Now notice that the book of Nehemiah was written in first person. Nehemiah is saying, I was in the city of Susa. I want you to know that we're going to hear from a leader today in the book of Nehemiah, and we're not going to hear from it from third or fourth or fifth or sixth party. We're hearing it from, this is the journal of Nehemiah. Now, I don't know about you, but I love to journal. I love to write about what's going on in my life. Now, I do it on my computer today, but there was a day when I did it and I had little journal books and they're in my office, they're in my study, and they go back for years, the different things that's going on in my life. Here, what we have before us today is a journal of Nehemiah when he was in the city of Susa. Now, Susa was not the capital of, of the Persian Empire, but it was somewhat like a, um, a palace, somewhat like our, our White House today. That's where he was. Matter of fact, if you look at where Susa is today or where it was in the biblical times in reference to where it is today, it's, it's, it's out of the, the boundaries of Iraq and it's almost, it's actually in Iran. So in that region right there is where Nehemiah was working or dwelling in the king's summer palace. I want you to look at verse number 11. and the last part of verse number 11, it says, And at the time I was the king's cupbearer. What was Nehemiah's job? The Bible says that he was a cup bearer. Well, what was a cup bearer? By the way, this was a much coveted position. Matter of fact, he was almost, I mean, almost like second in command to the king. I mean, this individual, Nehemiah, was the most trusted man, the most dependable man, the most reliable man in the entire Babylonian region. Why? What did a cup bearer do? Do you know what the job of a cupbearer was? Whenever they would bring a drink to the king, whether it be wine or whatever the drink would be that they would bring to the king, the cupbearer's job was to drink a little bit of it before he handed the cup or the vessel to the king to make sure that it was not poisoned. Now, of course, if it was poisoned, then Nehemiah would die and the king would not. I don't know if it's a much coveted position, but it was a high esteemed position to be in. I mean, think about it. He's there in the palace. He's the right-hand man of the king. He's got a tremendous salary. He's got a tremendous job. He's been born and raised there. He's never seen Jerusalem. And here he is, the king's cupbearer. But let me make a point there. What is it, and you answer me here, what is it that Nehemiah is going back to Jerusalem to do? What's he going back to do? To rebuild the walls. Correct? He's going back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. What is his occupation? Well, if he's going back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls, apparently he must be a general contractor of some sort. No. His occupation was a cupbearer. I mean, he was just a right-hand man of the king. He would just take a drink of it and make sure it wasn't poison, give the cup to the king. He wasn't a contractor at all. And I want, you, I want that to sink in whenever we start talking a little bit about leadership. Another observation I want you to see is says that it's in the month of Chislev, which is November or December. But I want you to notice also that it says that his brother arrived from Jerusalem. Now, his brother came from Jerusalem to Susa, which was about 800 to 1,000 miles away. Now, notice, 
he didn't get on the next ding from Southwest Airlines and get him a $49 ticket from Jerusalem to Susa. He wasn't able to travel that way. He didn't get on the metro bus or he didn't get in his sports car and travel over. You know how he traveled? Walking and a camel and a caravan of some sort. Matter of fact, he traveled nearly 1,000 miles and they tell us that that takes about two months or so to make that journey. For two months, Nehemiah's brother was traveling from Jerusalem to Susa just to get a message to Nehemiah. In verse number three, he gives the report. He tells him that Jerusalem is devastated. Notice that he's concerned about Jerusalem. And remember that the children of Israel have been in captivity for 70 years before the first group was allowed to go back. Two groups have already returned. Nehemiah has never seen Jerusalem. Let that sink in. He's never been there. He's never seen it. He wasn't raised there. But that was his people. And he was very much concerned about his people and his homeland. And he asked from his brothers, how is it? He told them it was devastated. I want you to pay attention to Nehemiah's response. This is a verse that really got a hold of my heart this week. Verse number four. Look there if you will. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. When Nehemiah heard about the devastation of Jerusalem, his response was that he wept and he mourned and he fasted and he prayed. Can I just meddle a little bit right here? You see, where I went to school, Bible college, they taught us preachers, if you didn't meddle a little bit, you're really not preaching. So let me meddle just a little bit here. How is it, or why is it, that Christians today, for the most part, are not weeping and mourning and fasting And praying over the state of our nation today. Why is it that it doesn't tear our heart out? I just saw on Fox News yesterday that in the Bible Belt, there's a group of individuals that are rising up and they're saying, you can no longer distribute the Word of God freely. We don't want it in hotels. They're attacking the Gideons. They're attacking the Bible being handed out and given freely. That should break our heart as a child of God. But why is it that we don't really see a lot of Christians today weeping and mourning and fasting and praying over the state of our nation, our country, our world today? You know what we're more concerned about? The national championship in college football. You know what we're more concerned about? That Duke got beat yesterday by Georgia Tech. You know what we're more concerned about? That Carolina Tar Heels got beat by College of Charleston. 
You know what we're more concerned about? Who the Rams are going to get in draft position because of how horrible they were in football this year. You know what? I mean, guys, listen, that's kind of where we are. Hello? And my prayer is that God would get a hold of our hearts and that He would... I apologize if you wanted to hear something real soft today. But guys, this thing called Christianity is real. And this thing called a church is real. And it's time today for some godly leaders, men and women, to rise up. If you follow me on Twitter or my Facebook, you'll see. I put that on there as a status. It is time that we rise up and that we raise up some godly leaders that has a heart like Nehemiah that's broken that's weeping, that's crying, and then it's going to do something about it, and it's going to fast, and it's going to pray, and it's going to get a hold of the horns of the altar, and it's not going to let go until God does something in our life. You know what we call that today? We call that old-fashioned. That's old-fashioned. That's what Grandma used to do. We don't, we're educated today. We don't need to do all of that. Friends, may I make an observation? That mentality and that mindset is what's got us in the mess that we're in today. It's time, it's time that the child of God weep and mourn and a heart be broken and that we be absolutely crushed over the things that crush the heart of our God and it breaks us to the point that we're willing to do something about it and it's going to start with me fasting a little bit. And pushing away and sacrificing and doing without and praying and get a hold of God and let God speak to me on what He can use in my life to help rectify a world that really is going downhill extremely fast. Hello? What do we need? We need some leaders. Well, let me give you three observations real quick on why God chose to use Nehemiah. Jot these down, if you will, please. I won't be real long on these. Three reasons why God used Nehemiah. Number one, because Nehemiah was sensitive to the needs around him. I mean, whenever his brother came to him, what's the first thing? How's Jerusalem? And then when he shared the story about how Jerusalem was, how it was devastated, the walls were torn down, it was a mess. He was broken immediately. Why? Because he was sensitive to the needs around him. I think his reaction is incredible. I mean, Nehemiah had it made. He really was on easy street. He had a tremendous salary. He was at the peak of his career. He was living on easy street. He had the second best position in the kingdom. He's got a great salary. He doesn't want to do anything that rocked the boat. But when he was sensitive to the needs around him, his heart was broken and he wanted to do something about it. You see, the problems of Jerusalem, nearly a thousand miles away, troubled Nehemiah because he was sensitive. Here's the point I want to make. The point I want to make is this. The people that God uses are people who care about the things that God cares about. The people that God uses are the people that really care about the things that God cares about. Hello? Here's a quote by Bob Pierce. He was the founder of World Vision. He said this. He said, let my heart be broken with the things that break. The heart of God. Boy, if we'd adopt that quote. Let my heart be broken with the things that break the heart of God. Nehemiah was sensitive to the needs around him. Secondly, why did God choose Nehemiah? Because he was dependable. I mean, he just had a proven track record. Nehemiah was dependable. 
He was so dependable that the king trusted him to taste of the beverage before he drank of it to make sure that it wasn't poisoned. And God's, if God's going to use us today, not only must we be sensitive to the needs around us, but we must be dependable. And here's the point I want to make here, and I'm going to travel on. The people that God uses are people who are trustworthy, people who are reliable, people who are dependable. Oh, may that be said of me. I want it to be said of me. And I may not be the best preacher in the world, and I don't claim to be a Bible scholar, but I do want it to be said of me. I could count on him. He's dependable. He's trustworthy. He's reliable. I don't, you, listen guys, you don't, have to, you don't have to come here wondering if I overslept today. You don't have to wonder whether your pastor is going to be in church on Sunday or not. Hello? And the same thing ought to be said of all of us. If God is going to use us, then we've got to put ourselves in the situation that Nehemiah was in. We must be sensitive of the needs around us. And we must be dependable. Can God depend on you? Oh, there's so much that God wants to do through the ministry of Victory Church. There's so much that God wants to do. But unfortunately, He can't do it because people just aren't dependable. Hello? Number three, why did God choose Nehemiah as a leader? Not only was he sensitive, not only was he dependable, but number three, he was available. You see, when the situation presented itself, Nehemiah as a leader rose up and said, God, I volunteer. He didn't have to go. He had a tremendous job. He had job security like you would not believe. But he said, you know what? I'm available. I am going to make myself available. You see, Nehemiah said, you know what? I'd love to go to Jerusalem, but I've got this responsibility here in Susa. I mean, I'm the king's cupbearer. My schedule is extremely full. I just can't do anything else because my schedule is so full. You know what? That was true of Nehemiah. But what did he do? He rearranged something in his schedule. So he created an opportunity to be available to be used by God. Guys, listen, I know. My, my soul, I know. I mean, so one of the hardest things that I do is try to schedule a time when all of our leaders can get together. That, that's so difficult. Why? Because we're all so extremely busy. Now, thankfully, these guys and, and ladies, they, they move things around and they say, well, you know, I'll work it out. Thankfully, they have that heart. But listen, I know we're all busy. Every single one of us are extremely busy. I mean, every single one of us right now, you're probably thinking about a dozen things. And if you're like me, whenever I get that thought, I pull out my phone and I go to my to-do list and I write it in there because I know if I don't, I'll forget it. And whenever I, I mean, I'm trying to do these things. We're all busy. Are we not? You're all there. I know you're busy. But guys, listen, unfortunately, we get so busy with stuff in this world that God can't even use us because we don't make ourselves available. Nehemiah made himself available. And the point I want to make is this. The people that God uses are people who make themselves available regardless of their skill set. Now you remember I told you that Nehemiah was a cupbearer. There was a reason I hung out there. He's not a general contractor. He's not a, a mason. He does, he's not a bricklayer. He's not an engineer. But he said, God, listen, there's a need. I'm sensitive to the need around me. 
I'm a dependable man. I trust in you. I'm, a, I'm making myself available. I do not have the skill set. But God, I volunteer. Can you use me? And God says, yes, I can. Tremendous story. One of the greatest leaders. I mean, you listen to John Maxwell or any other leadership guru. They're all going to go to the book of Nehemiah. Every one of them. Tremendous leadership principles you can pull out of this book. This was just a cupbearer. He wasn't an architect. He wasn't an engineer. He wasn't a general contractor. He's just a cupbearer that made himself available. And when he did that, God said, I can use you. I'll give you the skill set you need. You see, too often what we tell God is, God, you know, I just can't do that. Well, how do you know you can't do that? Have you given God a chance to work through you? Most of us have not. Hello? Just make yourself available. God's not looking for ability in leaders. This is something I wrote in my notes. God's not looking for ability in leaders as much as He's looking for credibility, dependability, and availability. And our desire here at Victory Church is for everyone to be a leader. You see, you're all good at something. Every single one of us are gifted, we're blessed, we're talented, we have some skill. But even whether you have it or not, we just make ourselves available and God can use us. Now let me share with you real quickly, and this is kind of wrapping it up. But those are some reasons God used Nehemiah, and I hope and pray that God speaks to our heart through that so that he can use us. But one of the things that we, wanted, we intentionally try to do here, and if I had to grade us, I only want to tell you what I think the grade would be on whether an A, B, C, D, or E. Sometimes I think it's an A in some places and it's an E in other places or an F. But we're, we're focusing on this and we're intentional about this and we're striving to do this. But at Victory Church, we want to have apprentices. We want to have leaders training the next leader at every single stage, in every single ministry, in every single area of this church. Why? Because, listen, one of the reasons is... Our church really does reach out to the military. I love military families. One of the hardest things for me. You see, I, I pastored a church in North Carolina that while I was their pastor, they celebrated the 100-year anniversary of that church. I mean, that church was well-established. That church had people that had been in that church for 50, 60, 80 years. I mean, when the, it, they just didn't move. Born and stayed there. Uh, there's a sense of comfort knowing that People you invest in and train and work in the church, they're not going to move. And one of the biggest challenges that I had as a pastor leaving that environment and coming into this area and ministering to the military, which I love dearly, and, I've, and God's taught me so much about the sacrifices that you guys make, is that, you know, you build a relationship, you get involved in ministry, you're sharing life together, next thing you know, they get orders. And they're gone. And that was so hard for me to get a hold of. But I realized, God, it's put me here. And God's going to use us. And I'm going to still reach out to military families. And if we can only invest in them for six months, one year, three years, five, seven, whatever it may be, then we're going to pour our heart into them because God loves them and we want to minister to them. And this is God's church. And he said, upon this rock, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's God's word. God's going to bring the people that he needs here. So we're going to invest in everybody that walks in these doors. Hello? And we want to train up leaders. And that's another reason why we need to reach down and train up people in every area because we don't know when a key leader in Victory Church, the military may call them away. Now, the cool thing about that is 
is that I've got brothers and sisters and friends and people I've built relationships with literally all across America and around the world. It's so cool to connect with them on email and Facebook and other things. I think that's awesome. But our task is to build a church here. And so we must be involved in training people in every position at Victory Church. Now, here's the five things I want to give you of an apprentice. Jot these down real quick and I'm going to be done. Five steps of an apprentice. And this is what every single person needs to be doing in every single ministry, in every single job. If you set up chairs, you need to, you need to train somebody else how to set up chairs. If you plug in a sub or a, or a monitor or, or a choir mic, you need to train somebody else how to do Be sure everybody's trained on every... I mean, know that somebody knows how to do your job. Every Sunday school teacher should have an apprentice. Everybody should have somebody they're training all the time at every level at Victory Church. That's our goal. That's our strategy. That's what we're trying to do. For us to be healthy, highly effective, we must have apprentices in every single area. Now, here's the five steps. Number one, I do, you watch. I mean, just come alongside me. I remember the very first time I made a hospital visit, I went with my pastor, Brother Leonard Lindsay, and we went together and make a hospital visit. He's awesome. He'd go in, he'd talk, and he'd carry on conversation. He'd, he'd minister a little bit. Then he would pray and we would leave. I never did a thing. I just walked behind him and stood there, and then I walked out. I never said a thing, but you know what he had me doing? I was at step one. I do, you watch. And then it wasn't long. We were going to the hospital, and he says, John, today I want you to pray before we leave. And I absolutely about scared me to death. How in the world am I going to pray? Oh, and I was, I was frantic. I mean, that entire visit, I never thought about the individual. Oh, God, help me pray. Help me pray. I don't even know what to pray. Help me pray. Give me something. Make me aware of something. Man, I was just, but he had me at step two. Now, I don't even know if he knew this, but this is what he was doing. I do, you watch. Step two. I do, you help. Now, I'm going to lead it. My pastor led it, but I was there with him. And then when it came time, boom, it's yours. And then, boom, he got the ball back and he escorted us out of there. But that's step number two. I do, you help. Number three is, you do, I help. Now, the role is going to change a little bit. You're going to be the leader and I'm going to come along beside you and I'm going to assist you and I'm going to help you. And if you have any questions, I'm here and plug, you know, that needs to be done. Everything in sound, everything in Sunday school, everything in setup, every ministry we do, church office, staff. And I mean, there's things we need, need in the office where we need apprentices there. I mean, everybody needs to know how to do everything. Get in your particular area and work and serve. I do, you watch. I do, you help. You do, I help. And then number four is, you do, I watch. Now, it's yours. You just do it. Listen, there's enough. You say, but I don't want to give my job away. Listen, there is so much to be done. You'll never be, be out of a job at Victory Church, I promise you. As long as I'm the pastor here, there's always something to do. Hello? You'll never work yourself out of a job. So don't be afraid of that. I do, you watch. I do, you help. You do, I help. You do, I watch. And then you train somebody else. Once you've trained that apprentice to be the leader in that particular area, they, they don't need to now hoard it over. This is mine, and this is my sacred cow, and I'll never get... No! You're going to train somebody else to do it, and then you're going to step away and go over here and do something else. Or maybe more involved. Maybe it gets deeper. I don't know, but the point is, we need leaders. And for our church to be healthy, we've got to have people, number one, that are sensitive to the needs around them, Number two, that are dependable. Number three, that are, make themselves available. And then they just get plugged in as an apprentice and they start learning a particular area of ministry. Amen? I wonder this morning, is that you? Are you sensitive to the things around you?
Now, you'll notice in your D6 take-home study notes, as a family, I want you to pay attention to what God's doing around you as a family. And, and be sensitive. You know, Brother Darrell was talking about evangelism. It's not just us having one time a week where we go do a little something. It's you being aware every single day of how God is going to use you that particular day to minister to someone. The same thing applies in ministry. Be sensitive to the needs around you. Are you making yourself sensitive to those things? Are you a dependable person? Can you say, God, I want to be dependable? And maybe you look at your schedule and say, boy, right there is a problem. I'm just overcommitted. And we need to move some things around, reprioritize some things so that we can make ourselves available. And boy, when we do that, God can use us and grow us to great heights. And you'll be amazed at what God can do with an individual who just turns his life over to God and says, God, here I am. I volunteer. Use me. That's what he did for Nehemiah. That's what he did for Isaiah. All through the scripture, when individuals say, God, here I am. I don't really have the skill set. I don't really know what to do. But I'm sensitive. I know the needs that are out there. I want to be dependable. And today I'm making myself available. I wonder as every head is bowed and every eye is closed. And is that you today? Have you made yourself available? You see, God is speaking. He's speaking to all of our hearts. There's something every single one of us should be involved in and doing in ministry. Every single one of us are leaders. There's not some that are leaders and some that are not. No, everybody's a leader. Leadership is influence. The question is whether you're a good one or a bad one. And today we just need to say, God, I'm sensitive to the needs. I see the needs around me. And I want to be dependable. And today I'm going to make myself available. I'm going to move some things around in my life. I'm going to move some things around. And I'm going to make myself available to be used by you. You see, God needs you. This church needs you. We need everybody step up in the roles of leadership to help us grow and reach our community with the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you've never accepted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, that's where it begins. So right now, I just give you the invitation and ask you to invite Christ into your heart and into your life. Just ask Him to forgive you, come into your life. He died on the cross for you. He was buried. He rose again the third day. And right now, He's He's by the right hand of God the Father, making intercession for every single one of us. Just ask Him to come into your heart and into your life. We do that today. For those that are Christians, I invite you to do an inventory in your life. Why did God use Nehemiah? He was sensitive to the needs around him. He was dependable. And He made Himself available. Will you do those three things today? Father, right now, I commit this time to you. And dear Lord, I just pray right now for the individual that may be asking you into their heart and into their life. I pray right now, dear God, that that individual will just say yes to Jesus and cry out for forgiveness and come into their heart and save their soul. 
And I pray, dear Lord, for that Christian brother or sister. They look at their schedule and they're so busy. Help us, God, to rearrange some things so that we can make ourselves available and be sensitive to the needs around us and be a dependable child of God that you can use. God, I pray that you'd raise up men and women. God, to carry on this work and to reach our community so we can see lives changed. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.